that are alive, you are coming with me. What is this bullshit? Good Trash Genre Cast. I love you. You know. Wax on, right hand. Wax off, left hand. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all Hello everybody and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where a bunch of people gather around a table and we discuss the films you will never discuss in a film studies course. This week's film is Heather's, where we talk about all the things that belong to Heather. Uh, wait, the apostrophe is missing. I was wrong. But um, we're very excited to be talking uh, with you all about this film. Uh, we're going to identify the disembodied voices speaking to your brain. But we're going to begin with a unfamiliar voice for some of you. You are familiar with her written voice, perhaps from her frightful them article posts at the Good Trash Media Network at GoodTrashMedia.com. Uh, ma'am, could you introduce yourself, please? Hello, yes. Uh, my name is Kirsten Thurkelson, and uh, if you're nice, I'll let you buy me a slushie. Excellent, excellent. I like slushies. So that is a good call indeed. I'll tell you a story about the slushie obsession in my undergrad years, but that's a really, really specific story. Let's go ahead and identify the rest of the uh, voices that you're probably used to hearing and probably sick of hearing. Uh, beginning with the one you're sickest of, sir, on the far left, who are you? My name is Dalton Stewart, and Dustin, whether or not to kill yourself is uh, the most important decision a teenager can make. Um, well, it's pretty important, I suppose. Thank you very much for that. And, um, sir, to my left, who are you? I am Arthur Gordon, and I don't patronize bunny rabbits. <laughs> That's excellent. Um, you know, they don't take it well. They have sharp, pointy teeth. Very, very bad things will happen. Look at the bones. Uh, my name is... <laughs> wow. Thank you. <laughs> My name is Dustin Sells, and Dad's kind of busy right now. Tiger, uh, I'll have to help you later. And I'm so glad to be talking with you all. And, uh, yes, I called myself Dad yet again, and that is an off-mic <laughs> joke that is very, very funny. So we are talking about Heathers, but to warn you, dear listener, in case this is the first time you've tuned into the Good Trash Genre Cast, this is not a review show. Oh, no, it is an analysis show. And that means that we are going to do some spoiling of the film. However, we will give you the briefest of reprieves. We will open up with synopsis from the voice of the cinema. Then we will give our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews to the film. And then from there, we will play a game. The game may or may not involve mild spoilers of this film and other films in its orbit. Finally, we get down to business in our business section, and that is when we have analysis and we must indeed then have spoilers. You have been warned. So, without any further ado, Mr. Arthur Gordon, voice of the cinema, let's hear a synopsis of Heather's. In order to get out of the snobby clique that is destroying her good girl reputation, an intelligent teen teams up with a dark sociopath in a plot to kill the cool kids. Um, accurate. That works, yeah. That's the movie. So uh, there you go, dear listener. That's what it's about. Let's talk about whether or not we liked it. I'm going to open with you, Kirsten, for you are a guest host, and you wanted very much to be here, so I have some anticipatory guesses as to your opinions of the film. So let's hear what you think. Thumbs up, thumbs down review of Heathers. I love this film. Uh, I think it's fantastic. Uh it's such an interesting, uh, I, I love a good teen dark comedy, um, and uh, it's, it's, one of, it's one of my favorites. I actually just added this film to my letterbox list of perfect films uh, very recently. I know, that's uh, it's high praise. But Indeed. Yeah. 
All right. Well, thank you very much for that. So Kirsten likes it a bunch. Um, Dalton, what do you think? I like Heather's a lot. Um, I feel like it's, it's been a long time since I've seen it. This was the second, maybe third, I'm going to say second time I've seen it. And it's been quite a few years since I last watched it. I had forgotten just how unreal the film is. I, I mean, the, the unreality, the, the kind of inten- intentionally heightened world uh, that the film Heather's exists in. And once I rem- remembered that and kind of keyed into it a little bit more, it made the film a lot more enjoyable because it was kind of holding me at arm's distance for probably the first 20 to 30 minutes. I was really having a hard time getting into it. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about this more in analysis, but I mean, this film is much different, uh, than it was in 1989. It reads a lot differently, uh, in the current era that we live in. Um, so that made it really kind of hard for me to engage with it. Cause I was just like, Oh man, the eighties were a simpler, stupider time. Um, and as I kind of got more on its level and really started to wrestle with what it actually wanted me to wrestle with, I was like, okay. I'm there for this. Uh, it's very good. Uh, Winona Ryder is perfect. Uh, her performance in this movie is honestly what what carries it. I mean, Christian Slater's fine, but Winona's performance really just carries the entire film. And uh, there, there's just a, a real snappiness to the dialogue that I enjoy. Um, it's got a very, very 80s-centric uh, color palette. Um, a lot of just bright yellows and reds and pastels. And it, its critique is very much clearly coming from adult men, um, as often happens with uh, high school movies uh, in this era. But uh, there's good points being made, and I I appreciate what it's trying to do. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you in terms of a thumbs-up, thumbs-down review? Uh, This is the first time I'd actually seen Heathers, and uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I I think there's some really fun comedy. I like this kind of uh, surreal... uh, um, fantastical realism thing that they're playing with. Uh, I, I think all that works really well. Um, and I think it stands up well as an eighties film. I think it holds well, uh, as far as, you know, technical stuff. Um, so I enjoyed it quite a bit and I'm uh, glad we to finally get around to watching it. I've been wanting to watch it for quite a while. Um, and I think it's definitely interesting and I think it's extremely timely. Uh, and I think that helps, uh, uh helps its longevity quite a bit. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I also like the movie very much. I watched it a handful of times when I was a kid, and as I watched it for preparation for this show, I realized I did not remember anything at all about it. And yet, and still, it remains uh, very, very important to me. I realize part of the reason why I don't remember it is because I just was in love with Winona Ryder, and I think I still am, and was very, very distracted by all of that going on. With the film, uh, she is fantastic. Um, she is having a ball making this movie. I don't, know, guys, I don't know if you guys noticed this or not, but the uh, did not did two scene in the station wagon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that particular scene, you can see on her face that she is just goofing off with Christian Slater and trying hard to be serious, and that's kind of wonderful. And there's a lot of little moments like that where the the star power of both of Slater and of Ryder are are. They're not there yet, but they're growing, and you can see the actors that they end up becoming, and uh, so that's a lot of fun. It is uh, well-paced, well-shot, as we've talked about. The dialogue is sometimes tinnily delivered. Mm-hmm. However, the lines themselves are kind of brilliant, and uh, it's endlessly quotable, lots and lots of fun, and it's a movie that is uh, definitely uh, an important part of the conversation uh, that we're having right now in the early 21st century. So uh, there you go, dear listener. Our biases are generally pro regarding the film Heathers. Um, you now know where we're coming from. 
from regarding all of that. We're having this conversation here with the Good Trash Media crew that we, we, we tend to have these conversations all the time. We like to talk about movies. It's kind of what we're into. But we want you to be part of that conversation, and uh, you can do that via social media. And this is the part of the show where Dalton tells you how that happens. That is correct. This is the, the part where I talk quickly and try not to sound like too much of an idiot. Uh, if you would like to engage with us, as Dustin said, we're going to do this no matter what. Uh, but if you want to engage with us, the easiest way to do that is Twitter. Uh, at t- good underscore trash is where we can be found. Uh, that's pretty much the place for everything. Uh, some new stuff that uh, we find. Um, Arthur and I both try to retweet articles that we find from other writers that we really like. Uh, Arthur's really great about uh, pulling the uh, the listeners for what kind of content they want. We'll actually talk about that a little bit more later. Um, just it's a it's a fun time. We we have a good time over there, and that is probably the easiest and quickest west quickest way to engage with us there we go um we're also on facebook it's not heavily used but it exists and if you do something over there we'll find it eventually that's facebook.com forward slash gtm for all of good trash media uh if you have longer uh weightier thoughts to share with us about the show that's good trash genre cast at gmail.com and if you are so into the show that you would like to help us keep the lights on that's totally your call we're not going to beg you or anything but there is a means for that happening. It's patreon.com forward slash GTM. We are going to beg a little bit. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll let you pick movies. We'll send you cool stuff. Um, we'll tell you that we love you and that you're very special to us and also everyone uh, and that you're a beautiful, unique snowflake and no one can change you. So, yeah, that's the kind of stuff we'll do for you uh, if you give us your money. Thanks. Um, <laughs> really, the most important thing, though, is that uh, you get something out of this. We, we want you to enjoy this. We want you to have a good time. We want you to uh, have... Uh, thoughts you wouldn't have not otherwise had when you listen to the show and we want you to share it with people you care about uh go go talk to your friends you don't need to do all this internet crap we just talked about you don't need that it's great it's fun sometimes but most importantly you can just go you know tell your friends tell your mom does your mom like movies she might like the show you don't know Alrighty, well, thank you very much for that. Yes, indeed, we have commodified emotional support here at the Good Trash Genre Cast, and we hope that you can participate through that. But it's one of the only things I'm good at, Dustin. I've got to, <laughs> I've got to make my money somewhere. <laughs> so, without any further ado, though, guys, I think it's time to play the game. What is game? Who got game? Where's the game in life? Behind the game, behind the game. I got game, she got game, we got game, they got game, he got game. It might feel good, it might sound a little something, but fuck the game if it ain't saying nothing. And we are back with our own version of the cafeteria table poll. Um, it is the game this week in which we play our favorite charming psychopaths. Oh, that's right, favorite fictional charming psychopaths brought to you by Heathers. Heathers. That's a real spot-on Jack Nicholson you're doing there, Christian Slater. There you go. So we're going to just talk about these things. I'm excited to hear what my co-hosts are going to say. And so I go to you first, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What is your first selection for favorite charming psychopath? Um, I'm going to pick one from a movie I just watched, and that is Michael Powell's Peeping Tom, and that is Mark Lewis. Nice play. Um, uh, and he's similar, I think, in a lot of ways to Norman Bates, but uh, Michael Powell does a lot uh, to make you empathize with this character and kind of question his motives along the way. Um, but he is very charming. He's very handsome. He's kind of got this tall, dark, and mysterious air about him that really draws people in. He's got a great charisma uh, that I think makes him a very fascinating uh, you know, character within this film and uh, a, a, just an interesting, uh, I guess, slasher prototype, uh, really. And so I think my first pick would be uh, Mark Lewis. 
Alrighty, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what is your number first selection? Uh, my number first selection is going to be Matthew McConaughey as Mark Hanna in The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, nice. A very different kind of psychopath from the the one in Peeping Tom, although I've been looking... That was, what, just one or two, three years ago recently? Peeping Tom? 1960. It was 1960. What am I thinking of? A foreign film, I think. Never mind. Um, <laughs> never mind. That sounds like an amazing film, though, Arthur. Um, Mark Hanna, I think, is so much fun. It's, you know, Matthew McConaughey's got, what, two scenes in this movie? Three? Um, but what makes him work so well is he sells Leo's character on this lifestyle, on this way of being, on this worldview. And that's <clears throat> really what's so fun about Wolf of Wall Street. Sorry about that. What's so fun about Wolf of Wall Street is it intentionally tries to remind you, hey, the people that are in charge of the world's money are terrible. They're awful, and they are no better than the guys in Goodfellas, which is, you know, not the most astute observation, but it's one that's worth pointing out every once in a while. And uh, that's uh, Mark Hanna functions both narratively in the film and just kind of thematically as this gatekeeper into this crazy buck wild world. And, uh, yeah, it's nice that it, that involves Matthew McConaughey doing that thing, which is just a delight. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for that pick very much. Ms. Ms. Kirsten Thurkelson, uh, let's hear – I can't say words. I'm just <laughs> You can call me Mista. Oh, gosh, I'm terrible. Hey, what's your first pick? Uh, my first pick is actually um, Sean Bateman, uh, James Vanderbeek in Rules of Attraction. Nice. Uh, who is just – if you want to see – if you want to see James Vanderbeek, just young, young Beak, uh, just completely unhinged, uh, he is absolutely fantastic. The brother the of Patrick Bateman. The brother of Patrick Bateman. Yes, they are a family of psychopaths, as a matter of fact. Um, and uh, I've never read the book, but from what I'm told, you actually get to meet their parents in uh, the book American Psycho, and apparently they're just regular normal people. Go figure. Yeah. It, it's a romantic comedy, you know, meet the parents, and it's got more murder, though. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a lot of fun. All right, thank you very much for that, Miss Thurkelson. Um, I'm moving on to my next, or my next, my first pick, which is uh, Norman Bates himself, Anthony Perkins in Psycho. He is uh, very charismatic. He is, uh, you know, weirdly attractive. He's weirdly like this sort of aw shucks kind of thing. And then he turns on the crazy, and it's kind of awesome. And Psycho is a classic for lots of great reasons. Uh, the influence of Peeping Tom and and, uh, and Michael Powell there I think is important to keep in mind as well. So I like that both of those 1960 picks made it into the first round. Moving on to round two, number next, Mr. Arthur Gordon, what's your selection? Uh, I'm going to say uh, another Hitchcock film, and that is uh, Brandon Shaw from Rope. Not, oh, yeah. Um, he uh, Played by John Dahl. Uh, Brandon is just got this magnetism to control a room and he's got this arrogance that just he can't be stopped and it's a fascinating play especially once uh jimmy stewart shows up there's this kind of cat and mouse thing going on and uh he, but he's able to charm a room and I, and I think it's interesting that he's you know uh this game that he's wanting to play with uh this unbeknowing audience that he's got in the room with him and so i think that makes him even scarier than some other uh psychopaths that show up on screen Absolutely. I, I love the way in which he interacts with Farley Granger's character as well. Like, you see both sides of the coin. That you see the sort of charismatic public side and then the more evil, frightening, you know, side when he's dealing with Farley. So that's that's a great observation. I like that pick a lot, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what's number next for you? My number next is going to be uh, Tara Lynn Barr as Roxy in uh, God Bless America, the uh, Bobcat Goldthwait film, which we did way, 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 way back. Uh, many, many moons ago, back when we recorded the show at your house. Um, I honestly don't remember what any of us thought about that movie. I feel like it was kind of a mixed bag for all of us, as I recall. Um, and I think, Arthur, were you on that show? I can't remember. The, oh, 
the God Bless America show? Were you on that? Okay, you weren't on that show. Okay. Um, yeah, I, Dustin, I do remember you and I both being kind of middling on it, maybe? Yeah, I mean, I don't even remember the movie anymore. But what I do remember is Tara Lynn Barr's performance as Roxy, because mm-hmm. she really is a, a central point of what works about that movie. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, uh, Joel Murray is great yeah. in that film as Frank, but Tara Lynn Barr just really sells this film, and the kind of bushy-tailed uh, go-get-em teenager being party to this rampage is kind of what makes the film work and isn't just kind of a boring retread of Falling Down, uh, the Joel Schumacher film, which has not aged well at all. Yeah. Uh, and I think God Bless America is intentionally engaging with that film and trying to say, hey, that was a, a dumb dumb thing that we did when we made that movie, right? That was kind of a back ass ass way of looking at the world. And it still is. And, I, again, I, I like the, the weirdness uh, of the Goldthwaite's world in that movie. And it, I, I think it stands on uh, her, her performance as Roxy. Excellent. I like that pick very much. Uh, Kirsten, number next from you. Uh, my number two pick is actually from uh, a TV show. Um, and also, speaking of James Vanderbeek, if any of uh, you guys have watched Don't Trust the Bee, um, my uh, next pick is Chloe, played beautifully by Kristen Ritter. One of my lady crushes uh, in Don't Trust the Bee, which is an, a show that was too good to be on television. Um, and alas, it is no longer on. Uh, she's just, she is she is the definition of charismatic. And you just want to be her best friend, even though if you do, she'll probably flush all your favorite jewelry down the toilet. <laughs> wow. Now, uh, excellent, excellent. I like that pick a lot. My number next pick is uh, Mads Mikkelsen's Hannibal from the Hannibal series. Uh, I mean, just, yeah, he's awesome. And I like him better, I think, than the Anthony Hopkins. The more I think about it, Han- Hopkins is great, don't get me wrong. But I think Mads definitely pours on a bit more of that charm, a bit more of that culturedness in a way. And maybe just because of the expansive nature of serialized drama rather than the short, short you know, two and a half hour film that you're dealing with with Silence of the Lambs is just, is just awesome. And uh, Mads is one of my favorites of all time. So we go on to round last, number last. What say you, Mr. Arthur Gordon? I want to throw out uh, Dan Stevens as David in The Guest. Ooh, um, that one's good. Good pick. Yeah, the the way he plays it is beautiful, and, and he's just so attractive uh, when he steps out of that shower. Um, Sold the he, movie. He just, yeah, he just disarms everybody, right? And you don't expect anything to bad to come from this beautiful, handsome man. Uh, but Dan Stevens plays it just so beautifully, I think, and there's a nice little nuance there in the way he kind of... Uh, goes from uh, nice to uh, crazy and at the drop of a hat, I think he, he's able to balance that really well, and so I appreciate that performance and that film quite a bit. Awesome pick. We like that very much. Okay, Dalton Stewart, number last. What say you? Uh, my number last is, uh, like Kirsten's uh, number second, uh, also from a television series. It is going to be Rick Sanchez from Rick and Morty. Um, uh, look, let's Bold get th- choice, given the climate. Elephant in the room. Rick and Morty has a terrible fandom, and we all know this, and it's very frustrating because uh, I know Kirsten likes it. Uh, a lot of my friends like it. It's a good show. It is a very strong television program that is made the worst, obnoxious. The worst fans are the loudest. Exactly. And, and the thing that works so well about this show isn't the meta stuff that people have to talk about or the sci-fi that people love to talk about. It really is the emotional core. It is great characters. Um, and no character is greater than the world's worst, the universe's worst granddad, the multiverse's worst granddad, Rick Sanchez of Earth whatever. Um, it's such a great, and Justin Roiland's vocal performance is really great, but the writing of that character is so strong and it subverts what you expect from 
that that Doc Brown type character, that that uh, freewheeling wild card old guy that's going to mentor this kid, and it inverts it and says, "Hey, isn't it weird that this guy, the only person that wants to hang out with him, is an impressionable teenager? That's probably not a good sign, right?" And it engages what would make somebody that kind of person, and well, would probably be being the smartest person in the universe. What would that make a person be like? And again, it is the emotional stakes of that show that make it so enjoyable. Why I, I, I still uh, tolerate enjoying it, despite uh, a lot of people who like it that suck. There you go. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton. Number last from you, Kirsten, what say you? Number last from me, um, this is from uh, one of another another film that has a really questionable uh, moral center. Um, Harmony Cringe Spring Breakers. Oh, yeah. Uh, Candy, played by Vanessa Hudgens. Nice. Um, Much better than the obvious Franco pick. Yeah, obviously, no. Candy's, yes. Candy's way she, better. Is Candy is more evil. Oh, for sure. I mean, she's a full-on chaotic evil. Yeah, that, you know the the very uncomfortable uh, gun scene. Uh, I'm familiar that with she, it. Yeah, that she is completely in charge of. Um, just yeah, she is. If you want to see a Disney, I don't know what you guys Disney, are talking about. You, you don't know? No. <laughs> really? No. I can describe it in detail. <laughs> I'm just trying to make everybody uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, if you want to see a Disney, uh, a former Disney star, just <laughs> wilding out, uh, you should check out that movie. It's it's fantastic. Very and very uncomfortable for the for the mail set. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Thank you very much for that pick, Kirsten. Uh, my number last pick is uh, Tate Langdon from American Horror Story Ooh. Season 1, uh, a spree killer. A who, surprising pick. But, I mean, he's very charismatic. And somehow some of that sympathetic heart is found in that particular story. People love it's... that Evan Peters. And uh, so there's something to that. And I think that's an interesting sort of counterpoint uh, or an additional point to what we're talking about this week. So I wanted to make that selection. That is our gameplay for the day. Uh, dear listener, if you have any selections you'd like to suggest to us via those magical means of social media already mentioned, uh, please do so um, via Twitter mostly. And then that's right we're back your listener and that business is as always analysis and i'm very excited to be talking about this film uh right now i guess the very first thing like the biggie on the eye chart that i like to say is feminism right this is a this is a pretty uh, feminist film i think um I, I worried because again my memory was not the same uh or rather was really really spotty coming into the film so i was like what's going to happen i forget how this gets dealt with and uh, i found it to be a bit empowering um but what do we say about the uh the the, the sexual politics of this film which is uh there's a lot going on uh there's several different uh, avenues we can discuss uh what would you guys like to tackle first regarding feminism and heather's well, everyone looked at Kirsten, uh, <laughs> which would make sense. Uh, but, I, I, buddy, feel free. Okay. Um, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of this uh, film is about, I mean, Winona Ryder's character even says, you know, I can't control myself when I'm around JD. And for the most part, I mean, it is just his will against hers uh, and her figuring out how to go against him, how to take back her... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? T trying to take back her her, her power, power I, essentially, yeah. Um, and uh, she does that quite successfully. I agree with you that it's a feminist film. I mean, obviously, it passes the Bechdel test by 
a long shot. All of the characters in this film, with the exception being like the only main character being JD, who is terrible. Terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do like that the film does an interesting thing, and I was thinking about this as I was watching it because we have the the standard sort of you know frat boys and from the college from what Remington University or Remington College, whatever it is um, that they're going to, and and, and they're sort of. You know, very, very um, leering, you know, perverse sort of uh, objectification of women that's going on uh, with their treatment of the high school girls, quote unquote. And then we have the jocks doing, you know, sort of the standard stereotypical jock kind of things. But I like that Christian Slater sucks, too. Uh, yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. You know, it, it's that, you know, there this there's. There's a sort of like not all men hashtag kind of madness that's part of our conversation right now. And this film is already saying, well, listen, we're not really talking about that. We are saying that there are people who go to great efforts not to be like the bad guys, but if they continue to use their masculinity and their privilege and their power, they still continue to be um, coercive. They still tend to be predatory. And uh, that, 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 Christian Slater still is he, – he still, he still sucks. And I like that um, she wants to be done with cool guys like him. This film is definitely saying a lot interesting about masculinity. Yeah. Because I think w- immediately after I finished rewatching this film, I texted Dalton, uh, Fight Club is gay, Heathers. Oh, yeah. For sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, because you have these competing ideas of masculinity where, yes, um, like one of the first things that happens uh, when we're introduced to JD as a character uh, is the two jocks come up and start, you know, harassing him and calling him, you know, the other F word. Um, and, uh, yes, they are being this kind of pig-headed uh, symbol of masculinity. But pulling a gun in a, a cafeteria is bad. Yes, yes. And then you have Even if the, somebody called you the other F word. The sort of antisocial... Uh, uh, terrorism e masculinity. Yeah, which is a t- I mean, JD is no saint. Uh, just because he wants to rebalance power scales doesn't mean he's a good guy. He picks up Winona Ryder from a date rape. Like this movie does not shy away from what is going on on this this outing to tip cows. Uh, and you know, both characters just leave. Well, let's not forget that Christian Slater's a little date rapey himself. Oh, big quite, time. quite big time. A little bit. Yeah, yeah. He, he holds it in for a while, but uh. I, th- this film, again, in regards to its masculinity, yeah, I mean, it it very interestingly and just briefly engages with his dad, too, which I mm-hmm. think comes into what we're talking about, yes. right? Because his father is implied to have murdered J.D.'s mom a uh, little bit, or I either think, through negligence suicide, or intent. I think that it's implied that she's there on purpose. Gotcha. I, I, to it was me, my reading of it. I That is subjective. Gotcha. Uh, but at any rate, J.D.'s dad's reaction to the death of, of the mom is weird. Incredibly at, nonchalant. At, at best. At best, it's weird. And their their interactions with each other really clearly show there is not a good, healthy, functioning, emotionally supportive relationship happening there. Uh, so, yeah, what do you think is going to happen to J.D.? Probably not good, especially if he's already got these uh, pretty violent tendencies. He kind of needs somebody in his life to make him not want to hurt other people. Yeah, he and talks ex- about liking his mom. Yeah, somebody needs to explain to this dipshit why uh, blowing up a school's bad. Uh, and nobody is. And again, which is not to say that all, all bad men throughout history had just had bad parents. I mean, there's plenty of cases of bad men having good parents, but the ways in which this, this film engages with the idea that the world psychopaths are born in their teenage years. They don't come out of nowhere. They don't leave, you know, they don't leave with their MBA and go onto wall street having not been shitheads already. They don't, uh, well, let's just did not hurt anybody's feelings. Let's just say they don't insert themselves into positions of authority and power over weaker people without first showing signs that they take advantage of those situations early in life. 
Absolutely, absolutely. There's another thing that sort of touches in the sexual politics of this film, and that are, those are the queer readings, right? And mm-hmm. obviously the homosexuality, the way it's depicted in the film, uh, it remains very, very 80s afraid mm-hmm. you know, of those kinds of things. But yet there is this moment in this film that is kind of breathtaking from something from the late 1980s when um when ram and what is ram's buddy's name kurt kurt who are f- sort of framed for being gay right I, it's like it's like reverse dumbledoring i don't know i don't know what you call this thing it's like the weirdest sort of circumstance they're not actually gay but they're they're set up to have committed suicide and are they not are, are they, well they might i guess they could be i well, who would they know? did agree to a devil's threesome they did agree oh my god <laughs> I have. Oh my god! I haven't heard somebody call it that in so long. <laughs> Justin Timberlake says it's not gay; if it's a three-way. But I, I don't even know. Um, Him and Andy Samberg both stand behind those comments. <laughs> they are. They are. Uh, they are awfully uh, eager to point the finger at JD for being gay, which is uh, pretty. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah, it's a, it, I, uh, again, it's a way of masking. I don't know exactly. Occasionally. W- yeah, what's going on there with that? But I'm going to assume their sexual experiences, for the most part, have probably been heterosexual, and they may or may indeed be repressed homosexuals. But that being said, when dad stands over his coffin. I and, love. And talks about how much he loves his my gay, dead son. gay son. My, it's so good. Yeah, and I'm just, I'm, I'm sort of amazed at yeah. that moment. It's weird, Dustin, because I, I I remembered that scene and when it happened, it, it's jokier around that delivery than I remembered it being. Mm-hmm. But I think what the film is getting at is people love their children. It's reminding you that even in this unreal world that the film takes place in, is uh, there is a cost to these deaths and these false narratives that are getting created. Uh, not only is this parent having to bury his child, it involves a lie, but it also is over. You know it. It's reaffirming his feelings for his son. Um, there's good done with this lie, and it's just a, really it's a that moment in the film is an intersection of all the weird uh, things that this film is doing. I think is that that moment. It also immediately gets called into question. Uh, mm-hmm. JD's first response is, "How would he react to if a, he was limp, alive. a limp a limp wrist with a pulse?" Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and, and that's that's what's so weird about that scene in the film is mm-hmm. the immediate call into question from mm-hmm. JD, who can't let anybody have anything nice. Sure. Right, and I, I I think it is a legitimate question, though. I mean, sure. in for this sure. sort of for sure. a, a small town Ohio in the '80s, Sherwood, Ohio, mm-hmm. um, if this thing were to occur and he were to find that out, I don't know that Dad would make those sort of confessions, you know, in a, a situation with him having a pulse still. Probably and, not. And uh, but just to but sort may, of flag but you know what? that Maybe. is brilliant. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, is, is to say, you will say this in tragedy, you will say this in grieving, but what would you say while they're alive? To make that sort of bald challenge, to say, is to stick in the face of, against suburban white America, which is the uh, target audience demographic of this film, and to say, this is what you might not say as a parent if the kid was alive, but you'd be willing to say when, it's, when the child has died. This is a, a scandalous indictment of sort of double standards and the way we memorialize the dead, and also the way in which uh, sexual politics it ha- has a really, really sort of hypocritical double standard. I think there's also a lot wrapped up in the fact that you know, his dad believes that he that they they killed themselves essentially because they felt that they couldn't be themselves because they were gay and they thought that they you know couldn't be honest about that relationship. And I think that that Matt, I think that that offers some context too. It's not just that he's dead and gay; it's that he's dead because he's gay. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, I, you know, there's another thing just, you know, I'm just thinking of it as we were talking about it. The assumption that it completely makes sense. If you figured out you were gay, you just kill yourself. Like that just seems to be just normal, you know, as a situation that there's that that is the one of the most logical recourses one might take in the 80s uh, to figure out, you know, one's own sexual identity. And uh, it it does show some of the way that we've come so far, but it also highlights, again, just sort of the the, I'm I'm thinking Reagan era, I'm thinking HIV AIDS crisis and those things that are going on at the time and what's sort of scandalized in that moment. So powerful stuff, you know, love, love that scene. And, uh, you know, I also like that uh, the way in which uh, Winona Ryder's character sort of finds her way back out is in with uh, heterosocial uh, or homosocial relationships uh, with uh, lunch. Oh, gosh. Dump. What's the lady's name? What's the girl? Martha Dump Truck. Martha, Martha Dun- Dunstock. Martha Dunstock is what we will call her. Yeah. I, I was like, I didn't, oh. I didn't want to say it. And yeah, I, couldn't I know. I couldn't it. either. I'm uh, sorry. I couldn't help you. Martha Dunstock. Yeah. That, 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 that last scene reads pretty queer to me. Uh, what do you guys think? Maybe not? I'm going to say no, but okay. I, I think it, it, for me, I, I think it reads more as a realization that JD was something Veronica came to not because of JD, but because of who she had become from being around the Heathers. Uh, and, and for me, I think that moment reads less sexual and more just like, hey, remember that the people you hang out with are going to deeply impact the kind of person you become. Okay, fair enough. I, again, I'm just, just just wrestling with this film, and it just it's it's really really interesting and and, and strange. Again, just a strange artifact from this era, which is just plagued with homophobia, plagued with sort of toxic masculinity, and it is, um, I think, a unique uh, film in that oeuvre of stuff. Uh, okay, let's talk about high school. Uh, hierarchy and social relations and uh, and the way in which they relate to parents because I think that's an important thing that the film's talking about because it's not just talking about the sort of pecking order that we all know you know I think high school in the 80s was like high school in the 50s which was like high school in the 90s you know I, I think it's always been like this there's always this sort of stratification you know of winners and losers and that kind of stuff regarding that and I, and I don't think it's saying anything particularly new regarding that but it is saying something regarding the adult sort of interaction with that. If it had been a cheerleader, we'd have let him out for a whole day. What do we what do we think about parents regarding the social strata here? The adults in this are completely clueless as to how to interact with their children, with the children that they're around. They they even even um, whoever that teacher is who's always wearing purple and has all the butterflies in her room and is wanting to talk about emotions. She's the one who says, I have Heather Chandler's suicide note. We're going to pass it around and look at it as though that's an appropriate thing to that's do. That's so terrible. The, the adults don't know any better how to deal with emotions than the kids do, but they feel obligated to try. And so watching them just flounder and fail is one of the great comic strengths of this film, I think. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that the film implicates the adults because it's, it's showing uh, the, the scenes in which Veronica speaks with her parents. There's two that are literally like line for line, almost the exact same conversation. Right. It's, uh, it's absurd. It's borderline absurd. Yeah, they have the exact same conversation twice. It's, it's insane. And I don't know that I've ever noticed it before in that film. I'm like, uh, just watching that moment, this, this viewing, uh, it really hit me. And it's just like, wow, there, this is a thing that we allow to happen to each other, though. Like, it, it is highlighting a thing that happens 
in relationships that you allow to kind of become stagnant, where you're not actually engaging with the people in your life. Well, and I think there's an interesting counterpoint because those uh, three scenes are sandwiched. So we have the initial uh, sort of interaction with Winona Ryder and her parents, and they say the exact same things. Why do I do these things? Well, because you're an idiot. Do you want some pate? Do you want some pate? You too. Can you tell me about the dark horse candidate for prom? You know, the sort of stuff I'm supposed to ask. I'm just, we're doing the, we're doing, we're playing house like family, right? But what's interesting is those two scenes are sandwiched, and the middle of the sandwich is Christian Slater's interactions with his dad, which are reverse parent-son lines and the way in which it is scripted it is dialogue and of course it's all very very cliche hey son why don't you ask your friend you know to stay for dinner you know those kind of things you know how was your day at work you know dad and they call each other dad and son they reverse all that stuff and it does sort of give this idea that we go through the motions at times in our relationships and if we do that if we put them on autopilot without again sort of deeply investing and hearing one another as to what's going on that's when things get broken and I think the sort of uh, solution scene, or at least the the synthesis, if we're taking thesis and we're being dialectical with this, is uh, the, the 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 hanging scene uh, towards the end of the film, where Winona Ryder has faked her own hanging to get this confession from uh, Christian Slater as to what's going on and what's happening. But her mom walks in while she's still hanging from there, and the first words out of her mom's mouth were just, "I'm so sorry." I was I was just thinking I didn't want you you know and and the the sort of strange thing that she said but she just sort of said just I'm doing mom and I'm doing no and I'm protecting you but I didn't explain what was going on I didn't I didn't share with you my concerns for you and even though there's a little vapidity you know to what she's saying it's a little vacuous that being said she genuinely does care and she realizes that she failed to share enough of her own in her life you know Veronica like, sure does let that moment linger too Yeah that's yeah yeah, Veronica's not awesome Yikes. in that scene. Not, not, not at all. There's a lot of scenes where Veronica isn't awesome just throughout the film. Uh, <laughs> Correct. Which, She's a teenager. Which is exactly part of what makes her such a, a, a really interesting real, and well-realized character. Because if this film tried to keep her hands clean and keep her from sucking, it would be a much worse film. Agreed. Uh, it has to villainize her to some extent just because of... She is an accessory to murder. She commits two of them. I mean, she is definitely also guilty uh, of multiple we, crimes. We did a murder is maybe my, as quotable as this movie is, I think that that's my favorite line is, we did a murder. It's a good line. That's a crime. It's a good line. I do stand by my observation from years ago that I that I continue to keep making that all teenagers are sociopaths. Yes, and eventually they grow souls, and sometimes they don't. And uh, that is just sort of the Ooh, hot take. Okay. Hot, 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 hot take. Former substitute teacher, and I wholeheartedly agree. I, on the other hand, will not alienate our teen fan base and say, <laughs> "Hey, teens, it's Dalton here, the cool one. Why don't you uh, don't eat any Tide Pods, but do a sick water bottle trick instead." Okay. Oh. As a former <laughs> as a former teenager myself, um, I will say that yes, indeed, we are all sociopaths, um, and then some of us get better, and sometimes not so much. But uh, okay, I want to move on though to the, the last thing I really wanted to talk about, which I think we cannot avoid uh, with the events of the last month and uh, just what's going. We got to talk about school violence and this film's conversation. I think this film is saying something very different regarding school violence. Oh, so yeah. let's, let's, let's go ahead and hash out what it's saying now, uh, what it's saying then, and then we'll talk a little bit more about what it's saying right now. It's interesting that we've opted now to make the, to, to adapt this into a TV series because yes. as I was watching Heather's most recently, I was like, oh, you couldn't make this film today 
the it just the whole getting a gun into a cafeteria and like not getting immediately expelled and I, or worse. Um, I have insane. a comment on the Heather's TV series. Have you guys been do- following the r- write-ups about this? No, I have not. I've actually been qu- – I've heard it's bad, but that's all I've heard. Okay, it sucks so bad. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay, and the reason why is because um, it is basically Trump's Heather's is the way that it's written. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the Heather's crew are played by um, overweight um, LGBTQ students and uh, there's some other marginalized character. Marginalized yeah. I am I, aware of this aspect of the show that it's, it's uh, a person of color. Yes. Yeah. Something like Look that. Look at yeah. these nutty Gen Z kids. Can you believe that sometimes the cool kids are the kids that used to get picked on? Whoa. Yeah. And I've, I've read the author's defense and I find it um, weak. This yeah. is what happens when people <laughs> in their late thirties write about teens though. Well, accurate. Often. Not all the time. I mean, there are plenty of great examples. Well, uh, some of us remember and some of us don't. Very well said. Yeah. And But anyway, I, just a side note on that. But again, this film itself is not so much about uh, the violence that we see in schools now. It is rather, I think, about a different kind of violence. It's about suicide more right, than yeah. it's mm-hmm. about uh, violence. And bully- the consequences of bullying. Yeah. yeah. It, because again, in 1989, school shootings, uh, violence in schools were a very isolated phenomenon. I mean, obviously... Charles Whitman's kind of almost a separate thing. Um, students of schools, especially high schools, they had happened, but not in a way that we know them to be happening, you know, currently, obviously, uh, and wouldn't until the late 90s. Um, but again, I think you're right, Dustin. I think it's engaging with, with suicide much more than it is that, that direct student-on-student violence because it, it didn't know that that might be a thing someday, honestly. It didn't occur to the film to engage with that. And so it's going about saying something about a thing that would end up happening because it wants to say something about something else, which is kind of interesting that the, the film's prescient in a lot of ways, um, unfortunately. Um, but what, what Christian Slater represents is that, I and mean, we were talking about that masculinity earlier, uh, he represents the most logical conclusion of some really gross shit that uh, we tell young men in our society, uh, especially young men who don't feel that they line up with you know, traditional, more traditional, uh, masculine examples, uh, that can go some gross places, man. Uh, and this film is, it's proto fight club. I mean, as Kirsten said, there's a lot of television and film and just art in general that can trace its roots back to Heather because it's engaging with something we hadn't even thought about yet, which is pretty cool. Absolutely, absolutely. I just re- recently read an article in Jacobian um, because, you know, that's how I roll. And uh, as we all know, um, I'm the red here. Yeah, we're aware. Uh, and, and I was it was talking about uh, the reason why students suffer the way they do now, but I think it applies as much to then, is because of neoliberalism. It is because of this idea of you must succeed. It, it fosters competition rather than cooperation. It, it does, uh, uh, you know, it's sort of Malthusian in the way that it creates this sort of social Darwinism. Uh, and that these these pressures are foisted on by culture broadly, but also by adults. You know, we're telling our children to succeed. They got to do these things. Think past the SATs. Uh, there's a moment where they're filming uh, part of their sort of love in, sit in, um, hold hands, sing kumbaya moment. Oh, there's another kumbaya joke in the movie that's very funny. But um, there there's this sort of moment where they're doing that, and the student says, "I need to get this video back next week so I can send it in for my Princeton application." Right, and this idea that the the entire uh, culture fosters so much pressure on students to individually succeed, to sort of differentiate themselves above and beyond uh, their other, you know, their other classmates, that you have to be the top Heather 
in order to run the school, that someone's got to be number one, that someone's got to sort of take, you know, the, 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 the fallen, you know, Mafia Don's crown. And that's, I mean, there's a weird way this functions like the Godfather you know, that I'm just now realizing as I'm saying this, uh, that, that those pressures are what creates this powder keg. It creates this situation in which uh, violence against other teens is prevalent and then also the, the pressure where they just don't feel like they measure up and suicide becomes a very, very real option in those kinds of moments. And so I, I think it's, it's capitalism is why this stuff is happening is what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. And they talk, I mean, it, it makes a lot of commentary um, that is, again, very applicable today about uh, the media's ability to elevate your social status um, with Heather Duke running to every network that she can find, wanting to make a commentary, wanting to make a comment uh, on the news um, and, how uh, I think it's Heather Duke makes a comment about Martha failing, uh, Martha pinning the note to herself and then walking out in front of the trap. It's just another uh, example of the less popular kids trying to trying to be the popular kids and then failing at it. Yeah, act like the populars, which yeah. brings us into the more contemporary issue because there's a couple things I want to talk about. We'll talk about children and access to weapons and uh, firearms here in a minute because I think that's going to have to be part of the conversation. But there is this idea that was raised again by the president last week, the idea of the uh, I uh, imitation, the mimesis that happens with film. And that this film does engage this with Martha's moment in which she is imitating the pop. At least that is how it is being read. I don't think for a minute the film thinks Martha is no. doing what she's doing to imitate. No. And, I, and, and so I think the film itself is a, an argument against imitation. Yeah, it, it is explicitly stating, no, it is never about imitation. These kids relentlessly tormented Martha. Relentlessly. Uh, and when these things happen, when a, fail, a failure by adults leads to uh, a child feeling like they don't matter. Uh, it's always put back on the kids. Uh, and the, the thing, well, this kid did this thing because of this thing they consumed. No, motherfucker. You're the grown-up. You are always in charge, period. You're responsible for these people because their brains aren't done cooking. Right, right. Sorry. I guess I was trying to make less of a comment of, of Martha's motivations and more of a comment of the way that it shows that... Heather Duke is taught to think. No, exactly. You're yes. absolutely right. And that's what the film is doing with Exactly. Exactly. You know, that's the only way that so she right. can comprehend things is yeah. in terms of popularity and in terms of social status. And that's the way we capitalism. That's exactly. the way we often uh interpret these things and, you know, work through these things is finding an out. Um and that's what Heather Duke speaks to is that that impulse that we have as a society to find a way out, to shirk our responsibility to each other. Yeah, absolutely. So, and now we come into the more broad uh, conversation that is going on right now regarding gun violence uh, or just uh, any sort of violence uh, within schools. Christian Slater has access to firearms, obviously, and also he has access to uh, explosives. explosives because Heavy explosives. Because his dad's in the demolition biz, right? Um, I think this film is interesting regarding that, that bit of conversation because it's really not commenting on that because it creates a situation in which Christian Slater has sort of extraordinary access, right, JD's? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, because it, it just – by the luck of the draw, his dad happens to have, you know, dynamite, you know, which is not a commonly found material uh, to be used. However, there's guns being used at the first part of the film and, you know, throughout. Which gun access wasn't really a – I, correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't really like a question. No. In 89. 
right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not 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 really a thing that they're dealing with at this point. And I I think the sort of assumption of the film uh, regarding that is yeah, guns are just around, right? And 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 that that is that is the situation. You know, that is the thing that we're talking about right now regarding what's happened in Florida, what happened in Sandy Hook, what's you know ad nauseum, ad nauseum, ad nauseum. Is, is that there's there is too much access to firearms for people whose brains aren't done cooking. And uh, that's the conversation um, that we're having right now that I don't think this film is having so much, but um, just something important to point out that the film is not, you know, uh, sort of I don't I don't in that way. I don't think the film's prescient. I think it's prescient about a lot of other things, but I don't think it's really anticipating what's going to happen later at Columbine 10 years later. And then, you know, the last 18 years of terror that we've experienced. I think that's you're right, though. That's where it is. Prescient is uh, it's fun to go back. Fun's probably the wrong word, actually, but it's interesting to Big go. Fun. Yeah, n- not fun at all. <laughs> it's not. Don't do it. Um, what makes the film so interesting is that when we go back and look at it, it, it is you get to look at this film and go, "Huh, it's weird that we didn't think it was weird that teens had that much access to guns, isn't it?" Um, and I think that's part of what makes this film a really relevant cultural artifact is getting to look back and go. Wow, we really spent a long time not thinking about this, huh? You can't even wear T-shirts with guns on them to school anymore. It's not even you. You get sent home for that. I mean, honestly, that seems kind of reasonable. Yeah, yeah, but yet and still. So uh, you know, thank God for some kids that are doing some good things right now. That's what I want to say. Heck yeah, man, go teens. Yeah, go teenagers. You're um, better than us. Yeah, because we have not done so much. Yeah, what was that thing about them not having souls yet? Uh, well, some of them, some of them are getting them quicker. <laughs> yeah, okay. You know, it's like yeah, it's like baby <laughs> teeth and adult teeth. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I, I, some of them have extra. Yeah, yeah. It it, it, it turns out um, onset of development is happening a little quicker right now, and I am well. All and for uh, it. if we're talking about what I think we're talking about, some of them have been forced to grow up real fast lately. So maybe the temperature got turned up on those brains. Yeah. Yeah. So there is that. Well, okay, those are all the big topics I wanted. Is there anything left lacking that we would like to address before we uh, call it a day and move on to the next section of the show? Um, I want to talk about the role of, of absurdism in this film. We touched yes, on it briefly. It's so fun, yes. Um, as far as the conversation that she has with her parents and just the ridiculousness, the, just the how separate. Uh, Whenever the teachers are having the meeting um, about whether or not to send the kids home for the various deaths that occur, how they are completely separate from the kids, both literally uh, and figuratively. Um, But, uh, yes, the repeat conversations and then the fact that uh, if you look at – if you look at the church scenes, like the – the funerals. Otho as the priest is my favorite thing ever. That 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 could be a scene out of a John Waters movie. It yes. is so ridiculous, and I I want to talk about if we think that that is you know saying anything. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if I have a particular reading of it. Um, other than there is a moment there where um, when they are making the jokes about um, the, the 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 not gay gay football players mm-hmm. with scare quotes and uh, you know all the sort of. Um, Buried in their football uniforms? Yes. um, But when they're making the jokes, what is clearly a little sister looks back and cries. Yes. Right? It's a good moment. And and, and I think, if nothing else, the spiritual element, the sort of church element, is, is there to sort of help us all remember that every human being really is valuable and that um, we have to 
you know, we recognize that all human beings are broken and beautiful. And some of us, I had a quote this last week from one of my favorite film critics, Gareth Higgins. Uh, he's an Irish uh, film critic and also uh, a guy who works with Wild Goose and uh, Peter Rollins with some uh, spiritual rallies that happen here in the United States. And uh, he said that some of us beautiful, broken human beings um, cannot feel like we belong unless we make somebody else feel like they don't belong. And it doesn't mean that they're not broken and beautiful when they do those terrible things. That there's there's a value to Heather, despite the fact that she's pretty heinous throughout the film. There's a value to to what's his bucket and Ram. Oh, I can't remember his name. Kurt. Kurt. It's I, a very forgettable name. And who names their kid Ram? Yeah, utterly forgettable. Kurt and Ram. That they are still people, even though they're complete punks the entire movie and that there were people that loved them and uh i i think if nothing else that uh church religiosity spirituality in the film is something of a stand-in for just the inherent value of human beings even when they suck and uh, we sometimes need to remember that the people who suck are still people and there's somebody's son there's somebody's daughter there's somebody's mother there's somebody's brother you know and by remembering those things about them that maybe we can find some of our own humanity and how we deal with them and uh, that's not a bad thing but um that would be the most i could read from that okay um but yeah and i love me some otho though and i don't know the actor's name but he plays otho in beetlejuice and mm -hmm. it was good to see him back yes uh, so that made me very very happy so there you go that's our conversation so far uh regarding the film heathers we come now to the point of the show where we must render a verdict regarding heathers whether it goes on the shelf or in the trash and then what else or instead we would watch i'm going to go to you first arthur gordon what say you shelf or trash else or instead regarding the film heathers i want to say shelf I uh, I think I'd put it up there. I think it's uh, interesting. I think it is timely. I think there's this kind of... It removes itself from any kind of specific decade. Like, I think you could read it in any decade, and it works well. And so I think it offers a lot to future generations. Uh, else, I would say uh, one of my favorite high school uh, comedies, and that is Saved. Uh, I think it works as a great pair to that. Um, that's just a fun movie. It's a great film, uh, especially if you've grown up in that culture. I just um, told someone about that movie the other day, like yeah. literally yesterday. It's a blast. Uh, I, I love so much about it. I would also say, uh, world's greatest dad with Robin Williams. Uh, yeah. Uh, Bobcat Goldthwait. Uh, I think, uh, there's an interesting parallel, but from the angle of the, the parent. And I think it's, uh, works well, uh, as a companion to this. And then I'd say, uh, make it a little more serious. I'd add the perks of being a wallflower in there. As well, I think that rounds out that little marathon and uh, has a strong emotional core that runs through all those films. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Dalton Stewart, what say you? Shelf for trash, else or instead? Yeah, I'm with Arthur. Uh, you got to shelf this. I think it, it just does. You know, we, we picked on uh, adults talking about being a teen, but uh, yeah, some some adults do remember it very clearly and write about it, uh, write about it with uh, a lot of heart and a lot of just interesting ways of tackling. I think. The darkness and weirdness uh, and absurdity of Heather's is a, a really great frame of reference for that conversation of, you know, engaging with how our childhood interactions really do mirror the rest of the world in very interesting ways. Uh, to pair with it, I got a couple of selections. The first one, a, a more conventional high school movie, but one I love a lot. Uh, one of my favorite films from a couple of years ago, The Edge of Seventeen, uh, mm -hmm. starring uh, Haley Stanfield and Haley Lou Richardson, the, the Kelly Freeman Craig film. Oh, what a good movie. Uh, that is much more grounded than Heather's, obviously. I mean, there's there's a little bit of uh, Hollywooding to uh, what high school is like in that film, but I, I would say not a whole lot. It, I think it manages to capture 
that time of uncertainty and that time of existential dread uh, in a way that's much more grounded um, and much more, you know, intentionally, but much more, uh, you know, emotional uh, engages with the audience in a much more direct emotional way as opposed to a kind of more roundabout uh, you know, absurdist emotional way, which uh, I really appreciate about Age of 17. Next up, another heightened reality uh, high school film that I love to pieces. It is Ryan Johnson's debut film, Brick. Oh, nice. Uh, with Joseph yeah. Gordon-Levitt, which we talked about our, God, what, fifth, sixth, seventh episode, somewhere in there, early in this show's run. Um, I really want to revisit that film because I don't think I've watched it since we did it for the podcast way back when. Um, and it's a movie that I like quite a bit. And I think, much like Heather's... Uh, just uh, engages with high school in a weird way that allows it to illuminate some things that uh, we don't think about sometimes with high school. High school feels very serious, as serious as a noir film uh, when you're there. Uh, and uh, Brick uh, navigates that idea in a lot of really fun and interesting ways. And uh, it's great to remember where Ryan Johnson came from. Uh, you know, one of the biggest filmmakers in the world right now. Uh, it's fun to go back and see that first film be so small. Uh, and so intimate. And finally, uh, a pick that's a little weird, but I, I think holds up. It's going to be uh, Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight, which I normally I don't like to recommend Nolan films on this, this show because it honestly seems like a pretty basic film guy move. But I think there is a real through line from uh, J.D. as played by Christian Slater to The Joker as played by Heath Ledger. I, I think there is a real Chaos. solid... Heath and I were talking about this. Uh, my, my roommate, Heath Huffman, host of uh, Good Trash Media's very own The Praise Down with Heath and Alex. Uh, Heath and I were talking about this because he was kind of in and out of the room as I was watching Heather's. Uh, we talked about this idea that, yeah, chaos, exactly. That This militant, um, you know, outcast, toxic male masculinity that you see in the Joker, that you see in uh, Tyler Durden in Fight Club, that you see in all these characters throughout these films that share these echoes of each other. And it's because it is an interesting character to engage with and to think about and ponder why we allow these kinds of guys to keep showing up throughout uh, our collective story. Um, so, yeah, I, it's a, a really big through line, and that's really the only reason. There's nothing else about The Dark Knight that I think lines up with Heather's at all except for those really, really great performances. Excellent. I like that pick a lot, actually, Dalton. Thank you. Uh, Kirsten, what say you? Shelf for trash? Else or instead? Obviously, I think this film is shelvable. Um, I mentioned earlier that I added it to my very short list of perfect films. I am a huge fan of... Now, you mentioned on Twitter uh, that your roommate did not enjoy Heathers. So I, said... I want to give you the opportunity to really sell people on Heathers because uh, I, don't think, I don't know if we would have ever got around to doing it if you hadn't always mentioned we should uh, do Heathers and you should have me on. Aww. Um, she didn't get it, and that blew my mind. Uh, I will say, I, that, and that's all of my... Uh, Elsa's are uh, black comedy um, recommendations. Um, I, it's just, I, it's a taste of mine. Um, I love things uh, that make fun of death, especially with the shiny, glossy coating on the outside. Um, Heather's is just fun. I, it's endlessly quotable, as I mentioned before. It's incredibly clever. It says a lot about a lot of things, and it says... As we mentioned before, a lot of things that are still applicable to the teenage experience of having to exist at in a public high school. Um, and I think that it can speak to a lot of our experiences, whether we are, you know, in high school, far beyond high school. Um, I, I, there's something in it for everyone, I think. Um, 
Yeah. Heartily agree. Yes. Thank you. I love this film. Uh, I actually didn't see this film. I, uh, I mentioned talking to Dustin earlier. Uh, I didn't watch it until college. Um, so for one of my else's, uh, I have Jawbreaker, um, which I believe was a uh, 99. Um, give or take. Yeah. Yeah. So somewhere around there. I'm, I'm not sure. I'll talk about it. I'm like 97, honestly, but yeah, I was with, um, who else in it? Uh, Rose, Rose McGowan. McGowan. Yeah. Um, Oh, uh, from Buffy and uh, Angel. Oh, Charisma Carpenter? No, 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 no. Darla. Oh, God. I can't yeah. remember her. I can't remember that actress's name. Oh, She's uh, Julie in that. Benz from, Julie yeah, Benz. Dexter Julie Benz is in that movie. I had no idea Julie Benz was in that Or Judy Greer. Or and Judy Gamer. Greer. Wow. Yes. That is a solid cast. It's a really good cast. I've never so seen Jawbreaker. It has a terrible, it has a terrible rating on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. And they're wrong. And they're wrong. <laughs> they don't get it. Um... So that, I mean, and it's a lot, it's, it's got a very similar sense of humor to Heather's, uh, and it's also, it's just, uh, it's so nineties. It's so gloriously, um, patent leather, uh, candy apple red nineties. It's, it's, it's a good pick. Rose McGowan is just completely there. There is just no good in her soul in that film. Um, Jawbreakers is yeah or Jawbreaker yeah if you have not seen that movie I encourage you to uh I'm not sure if it's streaming anywhere rent it on a uh, rent it on Amazon I or fully intend to find out good um uh for my other else's um I have a film that I actually just watched for the first time that I've been talking to Dalton about for <laughs> several months now um which is Tragedy Girls uh I have been trying to watch that movie since it came out it didn't uh show anywhere around here and it just started uh I think Hulu uh is streaming it now Oh yeah funny story about that uh so I was excited to watch Tragedy Girls as well and I saw it was on Hulu so I went on a couple of days ago and it was not there and so I was like, what is going on? Because I'm not crazy, and I know this was on Hulu recently. So I uh, reached out to Film Twitter, and one of the producers of Tragedy Girls uh, oh, wow. let me know that Hulu jumped the gun on releasing it. And so they had to pull it, and it will be <gasps> back in a few weeks. It is available to rent uh, or whatever via iTunes and Amazon and things. But to uh, stream it on Hulu, you have to uh, wait a bit. Whoops, so you got lucky if you got to see it on there. <laughs> I was watching it at a friend's house. I honestly don't know. We might have we might have rented it on Amazon. I'm unsure. Here's to film Twitter for coming through. Wow, quick that's for Arthur, fantastic. Though. That's so great. That's fabulous. <laughs> um, but that is another, and that's you know, we can we can hit all of the decades if you'd like. Um, that's uh, that's one that is definitely in a social media savvy world where everything that these girls are doing is just uh, they did it for the likes, they did it for the vine, they did it for the likes, they did it for the follows. Um, so check that one out for sure. Um, and then the other one that I have uh, is Drop Dead Gorgeous, um, which is about uh, the beauty pageant world um, and murder ensues. I've seen the first 15 minutes of that movie so many times, and I want to watch the rest of it so bad. But it's Kirsten Dunst. It's yeah, great. No, I'm again, I've seen the like the cult open of that movie uh-huh. so many times. I'm just like, oh, this looks so great. And for whatever reason, I've never gotten to watch it all the way through. Well, it's about, uh, it's about, I mean, beautiful people, um, who are, uh, just, uh, trying to, you know, do whatever they can to get a step up on the competition. So I think there's a lot of crossover there and a lot to be said for 
Drop Dead Gorgeous. Interesting. Thank you very much for that, Kirsten. Um, I am going to also say Shelf. I like Heather's a lot. I think it's definitely worth your time and is an interesting artifact uh, from its time and place. For my else's, I'm going to recommend an else that I have never seen because it has not released in theaters yet. Uh, but I've been seeing the trailers, and I think it would be a good pairing, and that's Thoroughbreds. Uh, I don't know if you guys... I want to see that film so bad. But it looks... Tentatively the best film of 2018. <laughs> uh, I, I also have not seen it yet, but yeah, it, it takes all my boxes, both in terms of Same. cast and content. Uh, rest in power, uh, you sweet, sweet Anton Yelkin. And yeah, absolutely. And it just it looks like it's going to be doing the right things and it's doing the same kinds of things that Heathers is doing. It's definitely got those dark comedy not- notes going uh, for it as well. The other else I want to give is a, a film that is already out and available, and that is Gus Van Zandt's Elephant, uh, which is a film that does something that's really, really difficult. Uh, Truffaut once said that it's hard to make an anti-war film because uh, war is so exciting. And uh, I think this is an anti-violence film, and it sort of denatures all of the excitement of the violence. So it is a slow and plodding watch, but it is a meditation on school violence and some of the things that we're talking about in sort of the, the contemporary conversation is a direct reaction to Columbine um, just a few years before its release. It, Columbine happens in April of 99. This was released in 2003. And uh, it's an interesting film, I, I think, for that reason. And uh, perhaps just a way to have a, a different kind of conversation if you were to double build this with Heathers because one is a very, very sort of zany fun, absurdist comedy uh, that has some darkly serious things going on. And this is a deadly serious uh, sort of uh, dealing with some of the subject matter as well. And also those those uh, notes of humanization, I think, are really important here as well uh, in uh, Elephant. So I recommend it really, really highly. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our recommends. Your syllabus just got longer. Uh, we got a movie next time, right? We're going to watch something else? Are we? Are we going to keep doing this show? I thought this was the last episode. Oh. Oh, I, I guess we can find something. Uh, actually, we recently ran a poll. Uh, I had uh, – we had gotten curious. I think it was on Princess Mononoke or uh, was it uh, – we had – question what movies had come up the most in our elser instead and i didn't figure anybody would actually take the time to do it but uh so i started looking uh, myself and uh little did we know yeah. that our listener keith and lane smith is one of the sweetest human beings on the yes. planet uh and he god bless him went through a hundred episodes of elser instead's to figure out uh what we had recommended so uh i i'm speculating he spent a good 20 plus hours on that i could be wrong um but thank you for that uh, yeah, that, that gets you an unofficial producer credit yeah. for this next episode, um, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, but uh, I did some research, did some calculations to find the movies that we recommended the most that we hadn't watched and ran a poll featuring Men in Black, The Shining, uh, Children of Men, and Blade Runner. Blade Runner being the one that was most recommended uh, as an elser instead. That, that checks out. Uh, that makes sense. And over the course of this poll, Josh Shepard uh, politicked hard uh, to get votes. <laughs> Uh, and he got Children of Men to win. So next week, we will be looking Josh at... Josh Shepard really ran a strong campaign. Alfonso Coran's Children of Men. For your consideration. <laughs> I am dying to see you guys do Men in Black. Oh, it'll happen. It's go- it's going to happen. Yeah, it was actually totally. on the slate eventually at one point. But, it, it's uh, totally going to happen. It yeah. will be watched by the end of this year. Uh, because we've, we've run out of reasons to not do it. Yeah. But. Um, I think we talked about Children of Men not that long ago. I think it came up as an Elser instead. I think you're right. Within like the last year. Well, I, when I most recently rewatched it. Well, it came up on Aeon Flux. Aeon Flux. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I mean, well, most recently. Maybe what happened to Monday as well it may have come up. Well, okay, yeah, yeah damn, it does come up a lot. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's an important film and uh, one that only gets better and gets more um, timely. 
Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. And I think on that might be too good because I think that may have came up in a film studies class or two. Oh, it's, in college. it's definitely but, too uh, good for this movie. I'll I'll do it, it anyway. It was on the syllabus in my uh, sort of uh, after the end of history um, uh, cinema class I took. The end of history is 1989. It's a sort of famous phrase mm-hmm. when uh, capitalism officially beat uh, socialism with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. The quote unquote, again, you know, end of history. And so we now enter into the age of globalization. And it was one of the films about globalization, which is going to be something going to talk about a lot uh, yeah, next time we're it, together. It's a remarkable film, and yeah, w- definitely in film studies courses. So uh, it's a cheat episode, but uh, those are fun for us sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. It is sort of a listener pick, so we are happy to do that. We'll be doing that for you next time. Take a look at this. Take a look at Heather's. You keep watching. We'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. They're gonna clean up your looks with all the lies in the books to make a citizen out of you. Thanks for tuning in to the Good Trash Genrecast. The Good Trash Genrecast is a product of Good Trash Media. For more info on all things Good Trash, head on over to goodtrashmedia.com. If you enjoyed our guest host, Kirsten Thurkelson, you can find her work as the Freibel Femme on goodtrashmedia.com, and you can find her on Twitter at Cranston. Um, our intro music, as always, is a supercut of Junkie XL and Hans Zimmer scored a Wonder Woman set to some film clips curated by our own Arthur Gordon. And our outro music this week is Teenage Music by Mike Kimmel. Break it down as long as I want to bleed So talk in your clothes I'll talk a violent post Maybe it'll leave you alone But not me The boys and girls in the clique The awful names at the stick you're never gonna fit in much, kid But if you're troubled and hurt What you got under your shirt Will make them pay for the thing